Here we are, February 1st, 2015, lecture discussion number uh, 185, I hope, on the Book of Romans. And as everyone is aware, all of you folks on the Internet, especially today, is going to be a short lecture, so as to allow plenty of time uh, for those that came to be so inclined to be able to see every single commercial and the lip-synced halftime show. I understand live animals this year, uh, next year a flying sand. That, that's an inside joke. Those are the languages. And I'm a trained professional clergy with many years of experience, and I know that to resist the stampede towards the television on Super Bowl Sunday is futile. It just never works. I've thought about just mailing it in, but we struggle through once again. Uh, I got to tell you here, I'm required every year to tell you what I think is going to happen in this game, and uh, today I think it's going to be one-sided again. I think Seattle 35, New England 17. I'll give you 17. Might be 17. My record over the years is pretty good. As you know, it ain't bragging. If it's so, I have found that youth and speed will consistently blow out old and crap. Under inflated footballs, uh, notwithstanding. And I know that old and crafty gets blown out by uh, youth and speed because the last 25 years I have been on the old and crafty side. And I've had some moments, they were significantly fewer than the youth and speed side. And thus I predict New England is going to confront a similar set of conditions and circumstances as last year's Denver Mannings. Two weeks to prepare is a lot of time. Two weeks to prepare negates the advantage of old people's craftiness. That's just how it is. It's a fundamental chronister truth. The dumb youths have time to study the old man tricks. And this is not to say that all young men are dumb. Well, actually, it is the same. Also happens to be the case. I never mind that. Fake so. Anyway, the game's going to be boring. And I, I predict, and if I'm wrong, this lecture will not be posted on the Internet. And if I'm right again, I've been right 14 out of 16 times. Pretty good record, I will submit, and, uh, and I'll be uh, likewise insufferable if I'm right again. Okay, so now I'm going to very quickly recap, kind of make this uh, a transition to maintain continuity for everybody. As I have been repeatedly asking, hopefully you remember, why does God in his word place the stretching out of the heavens with the forming, with the making of our soul spirit. There's something about stretching out the universe and the making of our soul spirit and, and the laying of the foundations of the earth so that they do not move. Somehow those three are related. And he does it in Psalms. He does it in Isaiah. The most definitive verse is Zechariah 12.1. Let me read that very fast. You notice I'm going very fast, right? I have, as I said, I have a lot of... Uh, writing on my ability to complete this before the first commercial. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man. Behold, he goes on to talk about. That after that behold is an extraordinary amount of information. That those three elements here in Zechariah 12.1 within the context of of the ultimate conversion of Israel, because that's what's happening next in Zechariah, the ultimate conversion of Israel. Israel's national confession is going to occur. What's their national confession? 
It is that they now recognize that they rejected their Messiah, who is in fact Christ, who is in fact God himself. They confess that. The nation then of Israel is restored and reclaimed by God, reclaimed by Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty himself, the Ancient of Days, the I Am. And then what what ultimately is the context of Zechariah 12 is the campaign of Armageddon. Therefore, the one who stretches out the universe, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit, is the same one who's going to save Israel. And so somehow, and, and next week we'll read the rest of Zechariah, but you can on your own time. Um, in, in the meantime, so somehow stretching or laying uh, um, and forming is interwoven with saving Israel as well. That's important to know because all of this is so that we can do what? Correctly define what lazy means. Remember as well how we got here. We're trying to define lazy and slothful in the context of Matthew 25, 26. And that, of course, is where Jesus Christ, God, at the trial of the third slave, the third man, the one who hid the talent, the judge of all, describes that man as wicked and lazy. And we're trying, again, to define both of those terms, starting here with lazy. And that ultimately sent us to Proverbs 26, 13 through 16, which taught us that lazy has something to do with a bowl of food and a lion being in the streets. The lazy man's not going to leave his house because he says there's a lion waiting to kill him. And the lazy man will not eat the food in the bowl. He will not bring the food to his mouth. You've got to ask a bunch of questions. Who put the bowl there and who put the food in the bowl? The lazy man won't eat the food. Won't leave his house. Says a lion's out there trying to kill him. And he's convinced, the lazy man is convinced that he is the wisest of all men. God defines these men that think they're the wisest, that think that they have all of this wisdom and understanding. He calls them lazy and wicked. It's a profound piece of information. Those are the trademarks that I rattled off, those four. Those are the characteristics of uh, those whom God calls lazy, which led us to ask some more questions. If you remember, somehow the campaign of Armageddon is related to the breath, the spirit, the soul of every man, woman, and child. Something about Armageddon relates to our breath, our spirit, our soul, and also the spirits that are the angelic host. And then all that's related to the structure and the motion of the universe. Which is something to do with why it is, all of, of all of these countless stars, how many do we have? All of this matter, if you will, in the universe. Just talk, talk about the star. How many stars? We have trillions and trillions of stars out there. Trillions. Beyond trillions. And we have only one planet that has life. Only one. The, the numbers are, are astronomical. They're also catastrophic for somebody who does not pay attention. I have trillions and trillions, countless countless stars, and one planet, Earth. No life but here. None. I know people don't like me saying that. I get paid. 
They don't like it. They say, oh, no, no, we're going to find it. We have big antennas. We're going to find all of this information. We're going to find life on other, in other galaxies. And the answer is, no, you're not. Hasn't happened, won't happen. They know it won't happen. They're about to disable those systems that have been searching all this time. There's only one planet Earth that has life. No life but here. Ask why. And that answers why the lazy man won't eat the food. So let me repeat that. Stretching out the universe, only one place where there's any life at all, one place where he puts breath, where he puts spirit in the physical reality, and that answers why the lazy man refuses to eat the food, refuses to leave his house, and lies about the lion. And that pretty much sums up where we left off, our current position. The great mystery of the stretching out of the universe, God makes it, and then God alone starts moving it. And that's an important thing to know. He didn't leave it stationary, he didn't leave it static. After he made it, he started moving it. And he says so. And he said, he does it alone. And then that alone, of course, you go and look everywhere else where he moves alone. The most primary spot, of course, is he is alone on the cross, on his cross. God is alone, moving the universe, and God is alone on his cross in the spot that he chooses. And you may remember from last week, uh, Isaiah 44, 24. God says definitively that he is alone in moving his creation. Just as he is alone in forgiving sin. That makes people mad when I say that. There are millions and millions of people who think there is somebody else who forgives sin. There is a co-redemptance. There is no co-redemptance. Because... What the typology of forgiving sin is what? Moving the universe. That means you have to create the universe. You cannot be forgiving sins unless you're the one who also created and moves the universe. There is no co-redemptance. They just don't know about stretching of the universe. Maybe somebody will tell them so that sometime. The implication is certain. Only God has can forgive sin, only he has the power, the knowledge, the witness required to uh, forgive sin. He's the only one that has witnessed every sin. He's the only one that can remember the witness of every sin. And, and by the way, that power is beyond our, our imagination. We can't conceive what is required to store all that information. He's the rememberer. He says so. That's why the thief called him that on the cross. Remember me. You're the one that remembers. You're the one that remembers and witnesses everything. You're omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. So, this, the stretching out of the universe is a type, if you want, this incredible thing that he does is a type of forgiving sins. So we have to contrast and compare it. It's all, and also, Life being only in one place fits into both of this or all every aspect of it. Physical life is alone in all of the universe, in all of the creation, and he wanted it that way. He designed it so it's his intent, the intent of the design. So breath and spirit and soul, living souls, are only here. Ask why. Why is he doing it this way? And notice that God says all over his Bible, in Isaiah primarily, that he says, it's me, it's me. Know that it's me. I'm the one moving it. When you see all this motion, know that I'm doing it. 
It's not dark energy. There is no dark matter. It's not gravitational phenomenon. It is not a natural process. It's God doing it, and he wants you to know that he is telling you that he's doing it. Give him the credit for it. Don't try to explain it away in some natural system. It's God himself. It is me. I'm doing it alone, he says. I'm doing it to prove something. So what's, what's he proving? I noted last week that the food in the bowl bore a connection to the manna given to the Israelites. Just as the lazy refused to eat the bowl of food, the Israelites rejected the manna. The rejection of the heaven-sent pure good food of life, that's the manna. That, of course, is a symbol of Christ. If you reject the heaven-sent pure white good food of life, if you reject the symbol of Christ, that rejection will result in death. And God wishes that none should perish. So he says the same thing over and over again in Scripture. He says, eat the food, take, eat this, this is my body, pick up the axe head yourself. Pick it up for yourself. He tells you to do it. Eat and live. Drink this. But most don't. The lazy man won't do it. He'll starve or he'll eat poison. He won't eat what God tells him to eat. And when he's doing that, he believes he's what? He believes he's a genius. And there's nobody anywhere near as smart as him. They exchange Christ for a lie, for a poison. And professing to be the great geniuses, they became fools. If you do not believe that God is here, that he is the creator, that he is involved, then you descend into hedonism, you worship yourself. You're a created thing, I'm a created thing. Created things should never worship created things. The only one that we, that we can worship is the uncreated God. How many are there? There's only one. So what can we worship? Nothing but him. He's the only uncreated. So again, trillions and trillions and trillions of stars and comets and asteroids and such plus only one place where there is breath and souls outside of the spiritual reality. Only one place where there is breath, soul, living souls, spirits, in all of the physical reality, the trillions of trillions. And you add to that, God alone is moving his creation. This slow, increasing, however, rate, this acceleration, started out slow and now it's accelerating. Plus, you add to that, God alone can forgive sin, and he is alone the only one that is forgiving sin. And then you add the bowl of food, the lion, or the death in the streets, the not leaving the house and believing that you're a genius, or the most wise. Add all that up. You add all of that up? What's it add up to? Well, let me put this on the table. I've always thought of the acceleration long as I can remember, the expansion of the universe as a clock. And I thought it was. First time I read it, I said, this is a clock. It has a time attribute, it's a, it, as well as a testimony of God's omnipotence and his, and his omniscience. See, I, I've always asked why. 
Why did God make that look up there? When I was a young man, we didn't have any streetlights in Anchorage, and so it got dark at night. And I'd look up there when I was 10, 12 years old and see all that stuff. We could see a long way. Now, today, you can't. Now you can get on the internet and see it. Not the same. And I'd look at it, and I'm only seeing, essentially, the Milky, our own galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, and I'm, it's incomprehensible to 10, 11, 12, or whatever I was. And I was up to no good, by the way, when I was doing that. We'll get into that some other day. But I'm looking at it, and the size, this amazing size, I just went, why is all of this here? And I knew enough to know that it was moving. So not only is it here, but it's moving. And I couldn't fathom it, and it is. Now we know how big it really is. It's beyond our ability to comprehend it, the size. And, And with all of these parts, all of this amazing amount of matter, uncountable, unknowable. We can't know all of it. It's impossible. All of these parts are interdependent. What I mean by that is they affect each other. They are entangled. It is the principle of entanglement. And then I, I, get the, I get the mass of it in my head as a small boy and as I've gone through life. I've always wondered why so much. I've asked that question to you many times because I wanted you to mess with it. And then all that stuff, it's in motion. It's in movement. It's moving. He did not leave it stationary. God made all of this, and then he made it all move. I wanted to know why. What's he trying to tell me? Eventually, as I did, as I've done for you, I figured out that he connected the movement of the universe, the acceleration of the movement. It's moving faster. He took that movement and that acceleration, he connected it to the cross. Connected it to making my spirit. And as you know, it's very common as an allegory to connect God uh, to time. Many, many have described him over the centuries as a watchmaker. They've long said that he created both time and then he created the timepiece. And the timepiece is the creation. Movement is evidence of time. There's a relationship between movement and time. You picked a white for a simple analogy, not applicable next year. Uh, next, next year, next week, I'll get it. We'll get into more depth. If you picked up a watch and it isn't moving, then it's not keeping time. There's a relationship between time and movement, motion and time. As you know, I try to play different instruments. All of them that messed around with the bass now a few years. The bass player is a time keeper. The drummer is a time keeper. Time becomes very, very important to, to both of those instruments. And so motion and time are relationship. And I submit that that's our first step in solving stretching out of the universe. When you recognize that this is a clock, very intricate, sophisticated, beyond our understanding clock. Now you're able to begin to see what it has to do with the cross, what it has to do with making you a spirit, eternal spirit. Next week, take that on. Hey, 
See how fast I did that? Yay. 